With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at the University of Cambridge Judge Business School. And today we'll be featuring a recording of a live webinar discussion about how bridges can be built between the U.S. and China through entrepreneurship. My guests are Jeff G and Ken Wong, from NavPAC Advisors, among other businesses involved in cross-border entrepreneurship. We had a fascinating discussion of how different cultural activities and sports can be used as a platform to bring people from the two countries together. Jeff, for instance, has worked with Harley Davidson on motorcycle tours in China to popularize the brand and the riding lifestyle. For many years, he and his partner in Nighthawk Tours led a Ride to Confucius bike tour through Shandong province. They visited Confucius's hometown of Chufu, as well as other cities in the province like Qingdao. He also hosted riders from China on Harley tours in the U.S., taking multiple thousand-mile road trips through the mid-Atlantic states. It was really interesting to hear how these riders were able to connect with everyday Americans based on their common interests in motorcycles. From Ken's side, he provides a number of interesting stories about his involvement in sports that connect the two countries. He is the current chair of U.S. Badminton, which is traditionally a much more popular sport in China than the U.S., and has been used as a platform to bring the two countries' individuals, businesses, and even government leaders together. He sees exchanges through badminton as akin to the famous ping-pong diplomacy that was influential in softening relations between the U.S. and China in the 1970s. Ken also discusses his work with dragon boating in the U.S. and also advising President Bush on participation in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Ken and Jeff, welcome to China Corner Office. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Excellent. So first, I'm going to ask Jeff a question. Jeff, you know, I can see, I don't know if the viewers can see, uh, you're wearing actually a Harley Davidson vest. (laughs) How I got to know some of your work is through that the exchanges you've done between the U.S. and China on Harley Davidson tours. 
So people from the U.S. going and driving around Shandong province, riding the old trails of Confucius, and also Chinese tourists coming to the U.S., riding Harleys all around mid-Atlantic, northeastern region. I know there's a couple of videos that I saw online of these Chinese tourists riding of Harleys in a big line through beautiful mountainous terrain with the Chinese flag actually all on the back of their Harley sort of waving in the wind. So really interested to hear more about this. How did this Harley tour exchange come about? Well, um, we're fortunate located in the Philadelphia area on Harley factory located in York. We're 95% of final assembly are done at York. So one point of time, I received a call uh, from our state government, ask if there's anything in Pennsylvania I'd like to showcase. So I think it's a good idea to tour the Harley factory. I think that's unique. People go shopping, you know, all kinds of things to see, but Harley is unique. So I put it together for a brief visit to Harley factory with a lieutenant governor of Shandong and that's blow his mind off. So he started asking, can we manufacture, because Shandong is a province in China with 100 million people. That's about one third of US population. And he said, uh, can we help uh, manufacture Harley? And I said, no, 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 that's an icon. This is an American your top five brand. We have to keep it here. And he said, can we uh, manufacture their clothes? I said, they've already have a channel set up. Maybe you're already doing for Harley. And then he said, how about tourism? then I thought it's a great idea because uh, I can bring a lot of winning party together. I reach out to Harley Davidson, you know, the board, and also the executive branch, create a visit, all done with my business partner, Wayne Block. Mm -hmm. uh, he is also in IT business. We have a business relationship, but at the same time, we are thinking we can put something together for Harley Corporate to help them sell more motorcycles in China. That's where the story started. Great, really interesting. I know from Kevin Shu, he says, Shandong Pride, bikers and Qingdao beer. <laughs> Sounds like good synergy, <laughs> exactly. So tell us a little bit about this. You know, I know at least one of the trips or maybe all of the ones in China were headlined called the Ride to Confucius. I mean, obviously, Chufu, Confucius' hometown is in Shandong. I don't know if you went to Qingdao or Taishan or the other yes. places. Can you say a little bit about the Ride to Confucius? Yes, total ride is about 1,200 kilometers. Uh, starting from Jinan, we went to Mangtai. We want to Chifu, we want to Weifang, which is the kite capital of the world. Mm. And we end up in Qingdao. So the total is about uh, 10 days, but we are not riding a lot. Back uh, 10 years ago, the road wasn't as great as driving now, but all the people have a lot of fun. In fact, uh, back then, uh, Harley just started the business in China. They have uh, 12 motorcycles, but not licensed on the road. So the Harley CEO said to me, hey Jeff, if you can make it street legal, that's all yours. And in addition to that, they gave us a budget. They gave us a lot of gifts. So we started our journey, starting with visiting the Qingdao dealership. This is the third dealership in China. Oh, huh. As of now, 25 already. Wow. Bikes in China sold out in August. Dealers have to survive on the accessory and the clothes. So because they have a different regulations, hardly make specific model for China. And that sold out very quickly. Okay, very interesting. And let me turn to Ken. I mean, Ken, I think you've gone on some of these rides. I don't know if they were the rides in the U.S. or in China. Can you just share your experience on those a bit? Sure. So I was involved with the rides here in the United States, and Jeff does such a great job in, in teeing this up here in the States because making sure that anybody that wants to come 
to the United States to do a Harley tour that they're actually qualified. Jeff goes to great extent to make sure that they're, all the riders know how to handle a motorcycle the size of a Harley and that we want to make sure that all the safety measures are taken to ride through here in the United States. And what I find is that just the excitement that the riders from China have when they get here. One ride, we had them come in to Philadelphia, and we set them up at a beautiful hotel in Center City. And we had some time to kill in the morning. We all know that tourists from China love to shop. So we made a short phone call to Tiffany's right around the corner from the hotel. And they said, they're not open yet. I said, well, could, could you possibly open up a little bit earlier for us. We have some folks from out of town that are very interested in shopping. So the manager, she accommodated us and we walk over to Tiffany's. And as soon as we walked in, the folks from China just converged on all the countertops. Mm -hmm. And we only had a few translators. So the translators were, were just running back and forth, running back and forth. And I think in less than an hour, this group spent close to $100,000 in purchases. I'm not sure if it broke a record for Tiffany's when what was spent in, in less than an hour, but everybody was very happy. Some of the people were actually even calling back to China because it was sort of mid-morning, which would have been later in the evening in China. Right. They were calling people, their friends back in China, telling them that we're, we're in a real Tiffany's jewelry store. Is there anything you want us to pick up for you? It was a sight to be seen, and, and it was it was kind of funny standing there watching all this happening. <laughs> and the interesting sort of juxtaposition, I mean, is at least in the U.S., I mean, the Harley rider are typically, I mean, they're wearing the leather, they're sort of rough. And I'm picturing this was the start of the tour. I don't know if anyone, they were wearing their Tiffany accessories with their Harley jackets. Is, is that right, Ken? Is that what they were doing? They, you know what? When they walked in, you would have looked at this group and said, that's the last group of people I would picture on a Harley Davidson riding through the highways of Pennsylvania. But when Jeff told them we were going to go to a Tiffany's jewelry store, they were so excited. It was, it was a very short walk. And then when they got there, they certainly knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, inter- interesting. Well, the uh, proof is Ken and I both get gifts from <laughs> Tiffany saying when they are coming back again. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, when we set up this tour, Jeff made accommodations to have enough motorcycles for all the riders. Some of the wives um, and spouses, they rode on the back of the bikes with their husbands. But some of the ladies were perfectly fine not riding on, on the bikes. And so we, we set up a, a luxury motor coach for them. So originally, we, we got, a, got a motor coach that could seat 52 people. We only had 20-some-odd people on the tour, and only maybe half a dozen of the ladies rode in the bus. So the, the bus company said, well, you don't need a bus that big. We, we can certainly give you a small 15-passenger vehicle. And we said, no, 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 no. Just, just leave it at 52. And our, our hunch uh, proved out. We filled the entire bus with packages and goods that they purchased as a matter of fact, Jeff reminded me just uh, earlier today that we had to stop at UPS a handful of times to box up and ship things back to China on, on their behalf. But the folks that came certainly made great use of their money to buy gifts and buy souvenirs and all sorts of things here in the United States. Great. Really inter- interesting. And I think one of the things that I'm thinking about, so I've seen some of the videos and I'll, uh, maybe we can circulate some of those, but people can Google Nighthawk Tours, VOA, and they get some of these in- very interesting videos. But what many of the participants were talking about is how welcomed and warm they felt that other Harley riders were 
This idea of sort of creating bridges between people in different countries is so important. And my guess is they were also from very different sort of socioeconomic demographic situations, given what you're saying right now, because of this common interest in Harleys, even though they all had Chinese flags flying off the back. I mean, there was something that bonded them with Americans. Can you say a little bit about that, about sort of maybe some of the interpersonal exchanges between the two groups of people? Uh, yes, there were six dealers in the Philadelphia area. When people all over the region came to join the events, right, they ride a short, at least a short distance to Valley Fort because mm-hmm. when they go back, they can say, I had a chance to ride with the Chinese riders. Right. When we visit Wellsboro on Route 6, which is uh, maybe 200 miles, and about 50 motorcycles stopped by um, waiting for us at Williamsport, which is about 100 miles away from the destination. They are sitting at McDonald parking lot just waiting for us to be there. Hmm. So you can see uh, enthusiasm on the U.S. part. To the, they are so welcome to write. They appreciate the opportunity to write with Chinese writers. Hmm. The same thing when we were in China also. When we were at the rally, I saw Jinan, which is Shandong province. Jinan has a group of writers. Oh. They're not very good at group writing. They're excellent at the personal writing. But because they cannot follow us in time for our speed while we're riding in China, because those 10, 15 riders from U.S., they're top notch and uh, in terms of riding skill. So yeah. they say even allow us to accompany you to the gas station so that we can brag about we had a chance to ride with the U.S. riders. Hmm. So you, lots of signs, names and friendship, you know, gift, they're all over. I just feel that this is a lifestyle that China is like a pile of wood. You can touch that the flame off very, very quickly. So this mm. is a bondage created by American product. Yeah. You can uh, talk about, Ken has seen many of those things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead, Ken. It's, it's sort of, as many of us know, you know, developing those relationships between the United States and China for business, even in the areas of diplomacy, when we can find and, and create that platform where people have a common passion, it transcends language. And, and at some point in time, it transcends the differences in the culture we have, because when you, you get two parties from halfway around the world having the same interest in something, whether it's Harley-Davidson motorcycles, wine, sports, all of a sudden the world becomes that much smaller. And it really sets the table for further conversation, which could very well be business or politics or whatever it may be, but it allows the the parties to become uh, relevant to one another. And it makes that conversation moving forward that much easier. Yeah, really great insights. I think, you know, hopefully we'll have more of those opportunities once once the pandemic ends. Jeff, one of the things you said earlier really stuck with me. I wanted to sort of follow up with you about it again. So you mentioned ideas like sort of street legal bikes that are produced in the U.S. versus specific product that is produced for the China market. Can you say more about what can actually be ridden in China versus not? And then also some of the expansion. You mentioned now there's 25 dealers. Well, the standards are different in China. So the pipes, the exhaust pipes, they have to be make it the sound dissonant okay. it, in a way. So when we're out of the hotel, we started the motorcycle by Harley made for China. We saw something mechanical issues. Yeah. Luckily, one of my members who own a Harley Davidson dealership, and he volunteered as mechanics. He said he was at the York Harley Davidson, Mr. Logerman, and he said there was no problem. So he's right. So this is a different. But 
the funny thing on that is we'll have to go through all the legal trainings, all the uh, transportation, like mm -hmm. vehicle, motorcycle trainings, uh, get a temporary license of months, 20 days in order to write that legal. So we immediately before touch the motorcycle, we'll have to go through the courses. And of course, you know, Shandong police are so friendly. Hmm. Like I said, about 900 of them sealed every intersection. You know, at lunch, 30 police officers, uh, you know, eating on a separate table at every <laughs> lunch. We were able to go through the controlled area, like a, a record long bridge, in uh. Qingdao, uh, no motorcycle ever allowed. But here we go. So people are so welcome. Mm. They gave us a lot of a special treat. Uh, we were able to see the beautiful, beautiful scenery in Shandong. Now, people from Germany, Harley Rider from Germany, from Korea, after they see us, Shandong become a tourism destination. Oh, interesting. So there were a lot of Harley Davidson or other brand motorcycles riding in Shandong now. Very interesting. You mentioned that they sealed off. So it was like they were the U.S. president or, you know, like they, it was oh, like the roads were cleared. Yeah. Is that right? No, actually, they closed the intersection for okay. an hour or so because it's very hard to control our speed. Uh, but we feel bad about it. But 10 years ago, people are saying leaders from Beijing come over like Wen Jiabao. <laughs> we were like road closed for 20 minutes. But how come we close for an hour or two just huh. for you? You know, local decision, you know, we just feel bad about it. That's huh. why whenever we can pass by, we would quickly pass by. Okay. But you can see the Harley-Davidson as a brand in China, people like seeing electricity at that point because Harley is a style. Motorcycle is not regarded as a means of transportation, right. but a lifestyle. Right. Got it. Just a quick question. So you mentioned with the pipes, do the Harleys in China make the same loud rumbling noise as the Harleys in the U.S.? No, no. Oh, okay. It's much quieter. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Super. So one of the things that I also want to talk to you about was Ken has been working a lot on, you know, the chair of U.S. badminton. We talked before about this sort of badminton diplomacy, sort of like ping pong diplomacy back before Nixon went to China. Ken, can you say a little bit about your role in U.S. badminton and how they're actually working with China on this badminton diplomacy idea? Well, I'm the chairman of the board for USA Badminton, and we are the national governing body for the, the Olympic sport here in the United States. So we grow the sport here, and we are responsible for all the, the participants that participate at the Olympics and at all the other international events like the World University Games and so forth and so on. So it crossed my mind that, again, going back to what I said earlier, trying to find that platform, the platform that we can start at in areas of a conversation and it just reminded me of back in the Nixon era with, with Mao Zedong when they started the conversation. And again, they were looking for something. You know, we have two different cultures, two different types of government halfway around the world. And all of a sudden, somebody back then thought, well, we could utilize ping pong as, mm -hmm. as a platform. You don't need language. And it played the way they played in China is the way you play it in the United States. So... There's a commonality there. Mm -hmm. So right now, badminton is the second largest participant sport in the world behind soccer, hugely popular in Asia and growing rapidly here in the United States. So Jeff and I have actually had a conversation with the consulate, Chinese consulate in New York, about utilizing badminton as a means of diplomacy. And right away, the, you know, the deputy consul general said, just like ping pong diplomacy. I said, exactly. You got it. 
So we're hoping to further that concept and have some friendly matches here in the United States and in China. But again, it would create a platform that would allow not only our diplomatic leaders to come in and have conversation, but also our business our business leaders in, in both countries to support something like this and, and be able to utilize this platform as a, a means to start a conversation for business. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, through sponsorships and events and exhibitions, having Chinese badminton players come over and vice versa. I can imagine. I, I don't know, but my guess is the Chinese skill is much higher than the U.S. skill. But I, I could be wrong. I know just a lot of people, a lot more people in, in China play badminton. So I don't know if that inference is right. Is that correct? Ken? It is. And our, our yeah. best players in the United States happen to be Chinese. So, okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> but we have some very good young and up and coming players. But you're right. Right now in Southeast Asia, China, Indonesia, India, some of the top players in the world come from that part of the world. But again, it, it's having good competition out there. The, the players are there to, as players. They're not there as business people. They're not there as, as political diplomats. So just having a good competition is, is what the players are looking for. And also, too, if you want to get better, what do you do? You, you play people better. Right. And that's how you get better. So I think it's of great interest here in the United States to see that sport played at the highest level. It's the fastest string racket sport uh, in the world with a, the shuttlecock moving at speeds of up to 120 miles an hour. It's very fast. And I think people in the United States who think of it as the backyard barbecue event to play realize that, oh, this is really different. <laughs> this is really yeah. fast. <laughs> so yeah. it's something that we're, we look forward to pursuing further as a, another means of connecting connecting the, the two worlds together. Yeah. What you said really resonated and made me think, I mean, obviously we have sort of Harley or wine common sort of cultural products, but sports in general can really play such an important role in bringing countries together and, and sort of as a platform for commerce, as you're saying. And I know we, we, you know, we just had the Olympics in Beijing, and I think you were involved in some of the earlier Olympic or planning as far as the U.S. is, uh, is involved. Can you, would you mind saying a little bit about your experience with that? Sure. And I think you were advising President Bush. Is, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So from 2004 to 2007, I actually served in the White House as a, an advisor to the president on economic economic affairs for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders here in the United States. So in 2007, you know, I had the, the fortunate uh, experience of actually going to the International Sport Accord Conference that was held in Beijing uh, in 2007, the year before the Beijing Summer Olympics. And it was, it was just fascinating seeing everything that I saw and all the venues and uh, being treated, treated like royalty because we were there for the, the Olympics. We were guests of the Beijing Olympic Committee. So coming back to the United States, you know, at that time, you know, the United States is preparing for the Summer Olympics in 2008. And there were some factions here in the United States that felt like the United States should boycott the Olympics because it was being held in China. And I remember back in 1980, when the United States boycotted the Olympics in Moscow, what the experience was like then. And I remember having a conversation with President Bush and and just saying, sir, you know, the, the only people you're going to hurt by boycotting the Olympics are our own U.S. athletes who've trained their entire lives for this, for this one moment, this one moment to perform and compete 
at the highest athletic stage in the world, which is which is the Olympics. And, and China is only the host of the Olympics. They don't own the Olympics. Nobody owns the Olympics. And I, I encouraged him to consider going and supporting the American athletes in Beijing when they when they competed. And I don't know whether that was a conversation that helped him make his decision, but we did not boycott the Olympics. President Bush went to Beijing and sat in the stands and and cheered on the American athletes, just like every every other American, you know, that was there or watching on television did. So, again, sports is, is, is a great platform. I mean, I've competed internationally at, at different at sports where, where they're competing against the Iranians or the, or, or the competitors from Iraq. There's no politics involved. It's just, it's just good sport that we're there for, good competition, fair competition. Sometimes I think our leaders of our country should take a lesson out of that. Sure. I mean, that's, yeah, very, very in some ways different than the the discourse that we've been hearing recently. And I'd like to actually learn a little bit about what some of your, the responses to some of your business has been both in COVID and then also sort of the rising uh, nationalism in China and also from the U.S. side as well, a lot of sort of anti-China discourse. So Jeff, would love to turn it back to you. What's your sense in these last few years about sort of these cultural exchanges, obviously limited by COVID, but as far as the receptiveness on both sides for talking to one another? Well, from what uh, Ken and I have seen that uh, even though pandemic, you know, limit our travel, but uh, communication with our China client uh, continue. Not as good uh, as if we were there, but our friendship, you know, are able to maintain. And so the project, project still going, have delayed, but still going, you know, we cannot wait till the travel ban lifted. Ken, you want to share with some of your thoughts we discussed this morning? Yeah, yeah sure. You know, Chris, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, that with COVID things have, have slowed down. And, and I can honestly say that things really didn't slow down for us here at NAVPAC Advisors. We just found different avenues of, of keeping mm-hmm. the channel of communications open to continue to uh, work in, working with our clients to make sure they stayed relevant to the folks in China and, and, and vice versa through open lines of communications. I mean, it's it's amazing the amount of technology that we've learned to use over the last couple of years due to COVID. Actually, I think it's made us more efficient. Um, but we, we continue to, to keep the conversations going um, with our clients, both in China and in the United States, because we were, were dealing with certain things such as, such as healthcare. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the um, medical uh, universities that we're working with, the programs they have for healthcare for China is touching in areas that China is, is still in, in its infancy stages. So knowing that the uh, improving healthcare in China is a very, very important priority for the Chinese. And we have a resource here in the United States that can that can help raise that level of care. We've, we've kept that conversation going. We've been able to do as much as we can. And then developing a, an online program that can be offered to China. So not knowing what the future will bring with this virus, we worked with the university to develop this online program so we can still deliver um, to China what we need to deliver. But if it's got to be done virtually, then then that's what we're going to do. Yeah, I want to add a quick point, if I may. Sure, is please do. That American product, the quality, the reputation is so high. People looking at American product and service and standard of services as a gold, 
if they, so many Chinese enterprises want Americans to actually involved with them. They're working on an air cleaning product for China, but it's it just sold out through the JD.com, mm. Jingdong, right, <laughs> sold yeah. out. There's more order have to be produced. You know, people in Philadelphia have, have to expand their manufacturing facility in order to get those products. There were a lot of opportunities. There was a limit, but also we still were seeing there was so much potential for two countries to work together on the economic, you know, on the trade. I th- yeah, I think there's I think there's almost like two messages out there, Chris. There's the, there's the rhetoric that, that we hear in the media and that's being bantered around. But then we have the opportunity to talk directly, you know, with our clients and, and with the folks in China. And their interest is, is doing business with one another. They're, they're not interested in all the politics because it just, it just um, sort of garbles the message. Mm-hmm. There really is a, a strong desire for, for both countries to want to do business with one another. And as Jeff said, American products are still the gold standard in China. And the, our trade with China keeps a lot of people working in the United States and, and vice versa. And we have a huge amount of, of investment in China by major corporations, which helps to keep a lot of people working back here in the States. So global trade is very, very important for us. We, you know, from a nationalistic or patriotic perspective, global trade is important to keep our economy going. So we, we can't do one without the other. Yeah, definitely. I mean, very deep roots. I mean, this is in the, in the complexity of this is something that's come out on a lot of these shows. And I think you're right. I mean, the media can present one story at a relatively 30,000 foot level, but these items that you're talking about where the commerce is continuing, surveys of the USCBC, who's one of the hosts of this program today, the surveys they've been doing actually point out that 90% of businesses that they work with in China actually have expanded in the past year. I was just talking recently to someone who has a job similar to yours, and they were saying that actually one area their business has really expanded is people in China selling through Amazon, interestingly enough. And and that's actually been a real growth business, whereas some of the other businesses that are more in the media shutdown um, have, actually, ha- have actually contracted, but they found other business because, like you said, people are actually continuing to want to do business during this period. Our audience, actually, uh, one of our audience members has a question which is relates to this, which is sort of interesting. One thing, though, that has seemed to separate a bit is the media environments. So over the years, you know, we, we talked about this great YouTube video, the Chinese riders, you know, on their Harleys riding through Virginia or Tennessee. I'm not sure where. It was a really sort of nice Smoky Mountain type scene. However, you know, there, you know, that was on YouTube, which actually you can't watch in China. And the question yep. that came in mentions, you know, with these very different social media, in some ways, environments, is that a challenge for your business at all, where you have to advertise or communicate with people with many, many different platforms and many times maybe sending different messages through Facebook and YouTube on one side and then maybe WeChat and Show, TikTok on the other side? How, how are you managing, in some ways, technology split? In fact, we have converted the VA video into Yuku. So okay. in China, you right. can see, right? But also at the same time, my, uh, our company also helped Shandong province to manage the social media uh, web uh, to showcase the tourism. So as long as this is not uh, political, right. China have a pretty open 
mind about you know because they have to tell China's story in a way that Westerners can understand. So you know, as far as the trade. As far as tourism, as far as the social media, we have seen the the, the limitation, but you know so far we're managed to uh, to get our message across. That's one of the um, the key things that that we do at NavPAC is to be able to help with that translation. You know, it, it sometimes it's it's just the usage of 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 the English language and you using relevant terms and and and, and ideas. To get people to understand it, so they can relate to the concept. But you know, we try to be that bridge. We take a, a client and and look at what their mission is, what their goal and objectives may be, and then we assess it to help them to understand what's the best way to deliver to deliver their product, their goods, or services, you know, to the market in China and vice versa. And then we create that bridge. We make sure there's nothing lost in the translation. People understand, you know, what the objectives of each of the companies may be, so that we we can deliver it properly mm-hmm. in, in the right light and in, with the right intentions, um, in the right format. So this way, we we can be effective for for our, our clients. Yeah, I'm interested as well. I mean, we talked about sort of taking Harley to the to, to China and, and vice versa, and I know you you're involved in some other aspects of actually trying to bring some Chinese cultural elements to to the U.S. I mean, I think one example is I know Ken, you're very involved in dragon boating. Another example is I think you're working with is it Harbin to bring some sort of ice festival to different cold weather environments in the United States can you know maybe I'll start with you Ken on the dragon boat and Jeff then we can talk about the Harbin ice so back in the late 70s early 80s Hong Kong was trying to promote more of the tourism uh, trying to figure out how do we get people from North America and from Europe to, to, to come to Hong Kong and so somebody had this um, idea that well we could sort of build something out around our, our big dragon boat festival you know, Hong Kong has these dragon boat festivals in Hong Kong Harbor that may have three or four hundred teams there. It's 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 a huge event. So they thought, oh, what a great idea! We can we can invite Westerners to come to Hong Kong to compete in the dragon boat event. The only problem is that nobody ever heard of dragon boating in, right. in North America or in Europe. So they they sent a team of people around the world to to garner interest in this this great sport. So they came to the United States and they went to the NCAA, which is the governing body for collegiate sports. Right. Because rowing handled by the NCAA and the NCAA had no idea what to do with these folks because it really wasn't rowing to the North Americans. It was paddling. So they sent them to Philadelphia. At that time, the famed Boathouse Row in Philadelphia was where a lot of you know, Olympic rowers uh, were developed in a um, hugely popular sport in Philadelphia. And they sent them to Boathouse Row and they met with the uh, leadership of Boathouse Row. And they were kind of wondering, what, what are these people from Hong Kong trying to, trying to get? Because we row and, and they're talking about paddling. And then somebody from the delegation from Hong Kong said, now, if you can put together a a team to come to Hong Kong will will provide your team an all expense paid trip to Hong Kong. <laughs> well, of course, that they understood. Uh, so they put together a team to go to Hong Kong for the dragon boat races, and unfortunately, the rowers are usually quite tall. Imagine a group of of guys that were six foot four and taller in a dragon boat that was really designed for somebody that's about five foot ten. 
and, and shorter. So I wasn't involved with the team at that time, but I was told that they, they never got a chance to cross the finish line because the boat <laughs> filled up with water and swamped before they got to the finish line. But since then, we figured out the dynamics of the sport and, and we've won two world championships, you know, since then, wow. primarily with, with paddlers from Philadelphia. So Philadelphia is really the hub for dragon boating here in the United States now. Um, and we continue to have a great, great success with the sport. And, you know, we get a lot of people involved in it, but I look at it as a chance to sort of share the, the Chinese culture, you know, with folks that are interested in the sport because it does take teamwork. It takes 20 people to move a boat that size right. and that, you know, it's, it's good health. Good you workout, know, it's yeah. great, great exercise for you. Yeah. So I just returned from, from Florida. I was down there for the week for a training camp. We did two a day two-a-day workouts uh, there. So uh, we're, our season's getting ready to start. And you do those in the in the open ocean? Is that or No, yeah. it's, in, it's usually in... Uh, right now, they, we used to race in lakes and on rivers. Okay. But now, because of this, the current in a river, many of the races now are, are held... Uh, in, at least the international competitions are held in, in controlled environments, usually Olympic rowing venues okay. where the, the water is controlled... Just a quick sort of factual. So, you know, I see the dragon boats have these big, elaborate, very large looking, beautifully decorated boats. And I see typical crew boats are very sleek and, and minimalist. Mm -hmm. What else is different? Is it the way you row different? Is it the way the teamwork works different? Can you just compare and contrast a little bit? Dragon boating, for the most part, is a sprint sport. Okay. So you're doing a, a 200 meter, 500 meter, 1,000 meter, and a 2,000 meter distance. So for example, in a 200 meter event, you may go up to about 105 strokes a minute. Wow. Now yet you're figuring there's 20 people paddling 200 strokes a minute together for 49 seconds, wow. which seems like forever. Yeah. Where rowing shell, if your stroke rate is 32 strokes a minute, that's very, very high hmm. in a rowing shell. So imagine going over three three times that yeah. that amount. Even in a in a five hundred meter, you're going at a at 80, 82, 83 strokes a minute. So still a lot quicker than a than a rowing shell. Yeah. And you're going and you can see where you're going. Rowing, you're you're going backwards. Right. I don't I don't understand that. If I was going backwards up and down a river, I would be hitting every bridge. <laughs> yeah, I gotta have a good. I don't know, it's a coxswain. Who I don't know who the person is that directs them. The last sort of question on the dragon boats. Uh, sorry for all these details, but is there any coordination? The the twenty people. I mean, is there like there would be in a typical crew? Sure. You, you have you have your stroke pair, which okay. is the, the, the first two people sitting up front. They're, they're setting the rate together. And then you have a drummer, which is like a coxswain, that's communicating with the stroke pair and managing and calling the race out during the course of the of the race. And, and now utilizing a lot of technology. You know, our paddles used to be made of wood. Now they're made of carbon fiber. Mm. All the communication is done electronically. We have speaker systems in the boat. And we're using a lot of uh, various training techniques to to improve ourselves at, at various distances. So I've been I've been competing for the last 22 years um, in in the sport. It's 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 a great sport, mm -hmm. you know, relatively short uh, learning curve. But mm -hmm. we have you know we have uh, various types of paddlers out there that all come together, you know, to race in a dragon. But we have outrigger paddlers, we have marathon canoe paddlers kayakers but it's all paddling so we, we bring everybody together and 
sort of get onto one one specific technique for for that particular type of, of boat. Great. Um, then we compete together as, as a U.S. team. Yeah, really interesting. Oh, thanks. You know, another example I want to show or discuss is this another cultural product in some ways from China is this idea of the Harbin Ice Festival. And I know you've done some work on trying to bring similar, you know, maybe working with the folks in Harbin to bring similar ideas to maybe like Yellowstone or maybe even Philadelphia itself. Uh, Jeff, can you say a little bit about actually the work on the ice festivals? Well, actually, this is a project that me and Ken working together can take a lot of lead. Okay. And uh, one of the area is the Harbin Festival. This is they've been done this for twenty years, and uh, draw so many visitors. So they actually have expanded abroad, work with Canada, Montreal, you know, for this on every year. But uh, to Philadelphia, one of the challenges is the temperature. Mm-hmm. We don't have that, uh, and also the wind. So that's why you have to, you know, work with the professionals in Harbin to see what are the things that we can overcome. So in China, Harbin Ice Festival becomes so popular that uh, in many places that become all year. In the summer, you can wow. you can go into the controlled room and to, to see the Harbin. It become a language for you to showcase uh, local culture. So Ken and I work with um, with Harbin. We can work with lots of uh, you know we've been there a couple of times. And Ken has been to uh, Yellowstone <laughs> more times than I do. <laughs> I did only one time. <laughs> well, the, the I think the goal is to. Because uh, Yellowstone in the winter is, you know, unless you have four-wheel vehicle, there's no revenue. And uh, so they, mm. uh, you know, they're hoping to bring uh, in more visitors. And so as Philadelphia also. So Ken, you want to share some of your thoughts? Yeah, as Jeff said, you know, in Philadelphia, the, the challenge is that we, we can't sustain those, those below freezing temperatures for, for extended periods of time. And so... What they do in uh, Long Beach, California, with with a nice festival that they do, is they have literally a controlled indoor controlled environment, mm. which is very very expensive. So when we were out in Yellowstone, once the winter time hits there, they can they sustain cold temperatures for a period of of, of time, which which can make the festival viable there. And as Jeff said, in the winter time, there's only um, one. The northern gate of, of Yellowstone is open in Montana, so we visited that that town on a couple of occasions. They were they were very interested in the in the prospect of maybe a smaller version of the ice festival because the ice festival in Harbin is is like a, the size of a small town right. with ice carvings that are the size of buildings, but the opportunity is there. It's just a matter of figuring out the the logistics of the artisans and all the the equipment and so forth and so on. Because once it gets cold in Montana, it stays cold for a while. So that's that's not the problem. In Harbin, you know, it's a city of about maybe 7 million people. But during the, I think it's 45 days or about a month to a month and a half of their ice festival, they'll draw 11 million tourists wow. into Harbin from all over the world. It absolutely is a destination point, and even though the temperatures are minus thirty degrees, it doesn't keep people away. As a matter of fact, I was I was dumbfounded one evening. It had to be a good minus thirty degrees outside, and I saw a line of people waiting outside, waiting to buy ice cream. 
So I, I guess the good thing about buying ice cream when it's minus 30 is you don't have to rush to eat it because it won't melt right, in your hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the poor little <laughs> kids you see with the melting ice cream uh, down their curve. Yeah, exactly. We have someone mentioned, I mean, your, your discussion, Ken, of the dragon boats, I was very evocative. And someone mentioned actually <laughs> they want to get involved in, in uh, dragon boat events. And so, you know, maybe when, on our follow up, we can send some links to, to everyone because it does sound like a really interesting uh, sport. And as you mentioned also in the chat, there's many dragon dragon boat clubs throughout the U.S. So that's uh, yeah. that's great. We're running short on time. So if anyone has any questions, you should please put them in the chat and we'll try to get to them in the last number of minutes. Before ending, though, one other topic I want to discuss, because the work you guys do on connecting the U.S. and China through these cultural events is really so creative uh, and interesting to me. And I know you've been involved in, in your work in Shandong, I guess Sunzi is from Shandong, I believe, a town in Shandong. And mm -hmm. you're thinking of starting, is it a sort of a business strategy academy to tap the principles of Sunzi for executives? Is that correct? Yes. Yes. When, uh, we, when we were there on our, our project uh, for the Shandong Tourism Bureau, um, we had an opportunity to visit the memorial park that was there. And as we were going through the different pavilions, which represented a different chapter in Sun Tzu's um, book, The Art of War, it dawned on me that these are, these are the same relevant principles that you would teach business students, how to deal with your competition, how do you deal with your allies, how do you deal with your strategies. So we, we gave it a lot of thought, Jeff and I, and thought that what a great opportunity to utilize this as a, as a means to, you know, to teach business strategies to students, you know, where mm -hmm. that students could come from the U.S. and we could not only do a program with the Sun Tzu's principles, the art of war, but also to have the, the, the students connect with business students in China. And, and allow them to develop a relationship and develop some dialogue because mm -hmm. aren't we in a global economy to begin with? And these could very well be future business allies to, to these students that, that they meet now while they're in school. Fast forward a few years headed, you know, forward and they could very well be the same people that they'll do business with as they are with their respective companies and employers someday down the future. Yeah, if you tour UK at every bookstore, you know, you go to Art, Art War is everywhere. Many of those books are, are, are textbooks for business school or for, for military academy become so popular. I think people's yeah. exchange at some level can sustain and can thrive and that'll bring the two countries together. That's one of the venues here. Yeah, yeah, really, really. I mean, again, the creativity that you guys have of trying to sort of leverage the Chinese culture in the U.S. and vice versa is certainly quite inspiring. The, the one sort of final question I usually ask, and I would love to get both of your comments on this. So, you know, you're involved in U.S. companies trying to operate in China. Chinese entrepreneurs happening and coming into the U.S. market, helping create those exchanges. So for those two groups, Chinese interested in operating the U.S. and the U.S. trying to operate in China, maybe Jeff, we'll start with you. I mean, what are the two or three key recommendations you would give to each of those groups? Well, one is, one quick thought is, uh, you know, identify a winning set. 
believe or not, my writers from China, Harley writers, they were business people. Mm -hmm. When they come over to United States ride motorcycle, and someone pointing at a trash can in a city hall of Philadelphia, they're saying, in China, we don't leave the trash like this. We collect them, we process them, we make money out of them. So I have seen lots of investors, people invested, buy the building, buy the property, and come over to set up business in U United States. So my, my quick thought is you have to identify a winning set. In other words, take Harley, for example, who are the winner? You know, we have Harley corporate winner, right? Sell more, more motorcycle. We have a winner for, you know, local tourism board, right? And also we have a winner for exporting, uh, importing, because they're buying the lifestyle, they're buying the clothes. Mm -hmm. So to me, would be come across a scenario situation and to see how can we put the winning set together by both parties. So that's the thing that bothers me, drives me, and I'm sure I can have a lot to share on this end. Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff. Some of the things that we really push upon with our clients is, is helping them to define and refine their goals and objectives. You may take a, a very raw idea that they may have come to the United States or to go to China, and we'll spend, we'll spend a good amount of time working with them to refine that idea where it fulfills a, a corporate objective, a financial objective, and also it fulfills some type of of social social objective in the audience that they're they're trying to reach because we have to be able to translate what they're trying to do and create a message and a story that resonates with the if we're going to China it has to resonate with the with the local government and with the the and with the potential you know clientele they're trying to reach and in the United States it has to have that social objective and be able to resonate with the, the local business influencers here that would, we would need to build support around it to make sure that it would work in the United States. So we, we try to make sure that, the, that the, our clients are thinking along the lines of you know, what their true goals and objectives may be and, and to try to keep it simple, not make it too overly complicated because mm -hmm. that's where you, you lose a lot of things and that's where mistakes can be made. So. We try to keep it simple so that people can relate to it and understand it better. I want to commend the USCBC about their teamwork, about what they do. You know, in China, there's a term called the shared prosper, you know, you, you know common, yeah, common prosperity, prosperity. Right, right, right. You know, you analyze it, you know, you can that, uh, you know, you have to learn these things. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, so certainly thank the USCBC, you know, for their role in this. I mean, SubChina as well, put in the chat, SubChina Access, which is where I get all of my information from. So really totally recommend that. And, and I just want to thank you, Ken and Jeff, so much for sharing all of your stories. What I took away from this, and I so value hearing from people that are on the ground like yourself, is that there are so many different bridges that can be built between China and the U.S., and having things like common interests, be it Harley-Davidson motorcycles or playing badminton or riding dragon boats, or you mentioned wine. These are things and ways to actually get common, common interest and not only bring our people together, but also, as you mentioned, great platforms for building businesses and connecting on commerce, too. So thank you both really very much for joining us today on China Corner Office. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris.